0: Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Sounding Jewish Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Samantha Cooper, and each episode presents my conversations with musicologists, ethnomusicologists, and sound studies scholars who specialize in the music and sound of Jewish experience. I am absolutely delighted to welcome you to today's episode, featuring Dr. Edwin Sarusi. Thank you so much for joining me for today's Sounding Jewish pleasure. podcast episode. I'm delighted to have you. You're somebody I've wanted to have on this podcast for a really long time, because I think you are the pinnacle of what we think of when we think of musicologists working oh, in this you, field. Sir.
1: You're too generous. So
0: I'm just so grateful to have the chance to talk with you. I would love to give you the chance to introduce
1: yourself. Okay. I'm Edwin Cerusi. I'm a professor of musicology the Emanuel Alexander Professor of Musicology at the Hebrew University. And I think by now I can use the title Emeritus as of two weeks ago. Congratulations! <laughs> so it's very, very new. I also directed for 25 years the Jewish Music Research Center of the Hebrew University. And I continue to be active in spite of the new title within the Hebrew University as researcher, still guiding some students. So that didn't change. Right now, well, Sam, I am always working in uh, a polyphonic texture. So mm-hmm. I have a couple of projects at the same time. Right now, while we are talking now at the Katz Center for Advanced Judaic Studies, uh, the University of Pennsylvania, I am engaged in archival work with a magnificent collection of Jewish music that I always dreamed of engaging with, uh, and it wasn't much in the public eye, and now hopefully it will be a little bit more in the public eye, and that's the Eric Mandel collection of Jewish music, a sizable archive that includes manuscripts and rare books, mostly of European Jewish traditions, but also beyond Europe a little bit. Also very diverse in terms of genres, so not only liturgical music, even though Mandel was a cantor and Naturally, liturgy was the focus, but he collected also a lot of Jewish folk songs in different languages and also literature related to whatever we think or can imagine the field of Jewish music is. So that's one project. Another one, which it's an ongoing live project, It's titled Ottoman Hebrew Music, and that has to do with the entire spectrum of the engagement with Jews and music in the Ottoman Empire from the 16th century to our days. So I'm working now on a monograph on the city of Izmir, but it's part of a very large project that appeared in several articles hopefully uh, now that I may have a little bit more time than before, (laughs) I can put everything into a narrative that will tie together all the pieces that were published separately. And parallel to that, uh, there is also my work on the Judeo-Spanish song that has to do with the Ottoman Hebrew poetry, that. It also has its own venues that that go beyond the Ottoman sphere into world music, popular music, etc. And last but not least is my ongoing passion with music in Israel or Israeli music, again, to what degree that's a field or that's a certain genre of music, but uh, that always preoccupies me beyond the uh, book with uh, my colleague Moti Regev on um, mm-hmm. popular music and Israel national culture. I uh, have engaged into very small projects uh, related to the Hebrew song, the modern Hebrew song, and I hope to do a little bit more about that. And by the way, that also has to do with what I call the extended Mandel collection because I found at the Gratz College, we didn't mention that the collection is originally a Gratz College collection, it has a uh, very sizable amount of Hebrew songsters. Many of them are extremely rare, and actually the rarest ones in the collection are the Hebrew songsters produced here in America for American consumption that never reached Israel, which is supposed to be the center of Hebrew culture. So We discover more and more that America was also a very important center for Hebrew culture and for the production of musical materials. So that's another one. And So I gave you like uh, four voices at the same time. Yeah. They are diverse uh, stages of preparation. I don't know how much I will be able to consolidate from all that, but, you know,
0: so for being retired, you're awfully busy, it sounds like.
1: Yes, I am. Yes. Yes, yes, I, am. I was busy always, even before I started to work. Mm-hmm. I was busy. I remember my childhood as being extremely busy.
0: Well, let's actually talk a little bit about your childhood and hopefully some of your earliest encounters with Jewish music or sound. I'm really curious about the way in which you first encountered what we might think of as Jewish sound or music. And in particular, what kinds of personal or musical experiences motivated you to want to start studying Jewish music?
1: Yeah, that's a very important question, because I had no idea that there is something called Jewish music until I was 18 years old. I was born into music, musical family on the side of my mother, opera particularly, Mm -hmm. so I'm sure you will be happy to hear this. They were Eastern European immigrants, and they were among the founders of the choir of the opera in Montevideo, Uruguay, where I was born. Mm -hmm. So my mom was a magnificent concert pianist, too, until I was born, and apparently my birth ended her career at the time. But uh, she uh, was a soloist with orchestra when she was 17. So she continued to play. We had a grand piano at home, which I still have with me in Israel, my mom's piano, who went from Europe to Uruguay and from Uruguay to Israel. So it's a piece of history. And my mom used to accompany musicians who came home to play chamber music. And eventually I asked my mom to study violin. So she allowed me and became a violinist. And then I became interested in theory and composition. I started to study composition when I was 15, 16. And then I wanted to be a conductor. I used to go to all the rehearsals of the symphony with the score and dream of being a conductor too. So I was well immersed into the world of music Mm -hmm. in the sense of what we usually call Western classical music. However, I have a father, too, not only a mother, and my grandfather, of blessed memory, he was a cantor in the Sephardic community in Montevideo. By Sephardic in Montevideo, that meant all the Jews that were not Ashkenazi Jews. So my grandpa's shul included Turkish Jews, Syrian Jews, Lebanese Jews, Egyptian Jews. My family was from Egypt. So my Grandpa and several other of these old men that I still can visualize them, they used to perform the prayers with the most weird sounds from my point of view that I could imagine. But I knew my grandfather was a good musician. He was never, of course, a professional cantor or paid, etc. He was just president of the community to. Very important public figure, but for him doing the Hazanut was just a service that the community and they used to rotate. I don't remember that there was one cantor
2: there. <laughs>
1: To answer your question, I came to Israel to be a musician and to study at the Music Academy. And by those crossroads in life, I ended up starting to be a music copyist for Professor Israel Adler, the founder of the Jewish Music Research Center. And the only reason was that I was starving. I was alone in Israel. I came to Israel without my family, and therefore I had to maintain myself. I had a very small scholarship from the Jewish agency. That wasn't enough. So I was looking for work, and I insisted on working only on music. So one of the librarians at the National Library, she told me there is this professor around the corner We want someone to copy music. And the music I copied, it wasn't really copying music. He gave me the parts of the scores of the music of the Portuguese synagogue in Amsterdam. So I had the parts and he asked me to do a score. Which is yeah, beyond copying. Yeah. score. That's... So I remember this very well because... Uh, i did some of the scores and then i told him professor listen this in this bar the sign the note of the viola is wrong she said why is wrong who are you to say no way it doesn't work with harmony well i think it's a mistake of the copy so he was very impressed and the rest is history basically work at the Jewish Music Research Center for 52 years. Not consecutive, okay? But I had four years I was in California as a PhD student. Three years I was in the army. I was in sabbaticals. But in and out, I am in the same institution for 52 years. And I grew with Professor Adler. I grew with him and against him. But uh, I learned a lot from him. Uh, He was very different from me. He belonged to another period, another school, very philological, very librarianship. But there is something in the discipline of work that I got from him that marked a lot of my own work eventually. So that's how I learned that there is something called Jewish music. And since then, I'm trying to find exactly what it means even though our institution unequivocally called itself Jewish Music Research Center. Mm. Not without opposition from faculty members of the Hebrew University at the time, who thought that that was very parochial and nationalistic, etc., that we should just call a Music Research Center, yeah. without the Jewish.
0: Well, we're definitely going to get into some of your thoughts on that definition of Jewish music a little bit later on. But just to continue in the journey through your introduction to music, your moment of thinking you might want to be a conductor, your arranging of music for Israel Adler, and then your eventual work with the center, I'd love to know more about your scholarly trajectory. Why did you decide that your initial research topic was the one for you? And what kind of institutional frameworks were you in?
1: Well, again, I see life as a continuous series of casual encounters. And that also influenced a lot my way of thinking about culture as a researcher, that not everything has structure, is premeditated. So a second event that you can define as a game changer was in Lakhba Omer of 1973. So we are talking about May 1973, as a worker of the Jewish Music Research Center, I became involved with the Sound Archives, which was part of the National Library. But at that time everything was one unit. So the research center and the library and the archives were all one. And I started to meet all these amazing individuals that eventually I learned that they are called ethnomusicologists. Mm. Again, the old uh, generation that were recording at that time, the budget for just doing blank recordings was amazing. The idea was to build the archive, the sound archive, before everything is forgotten. Okay. That was the ethos. So it was a
0: preservation effort.
1: Eventually, when I grew as an old man, I thought that was sort of not a very good idea because (laughs) uh, culture is always disappearing, but it's always there, so no matter at what point you collect, it's always one point. Yes. But at the time was that because of the massive immigration of Jews from all around the world to Israel and the melting pot idea, etc., the traditions, so to speak, were going to disappear before Conte, and you have to record. Mm. But what happened in Lag Baomer is that the celebrations of this very special holiday in Israel, around the tomb of Rabbi Simeon Bar Yochai in Meron, in the Upper Galilee, was one of the largest musical events in in the calendar in terms of um, encounter of so many types of music in one place and one time. So we had an expedition, like a really anthropological expedition, like the old time. You can imagine Malinowski, Ruth Benedict going to the field. Our field was only two hours from Jerusalem, but it was like another place. We spent there a week. Mm -hmm. We rented some cottages there for tourists, and we brought all the equipment and and an entire team of eight, ten people And I was the youngest one. I was a kid for them, you know. And so they took me just to carry the equipment. (laughs) And I was transformed by that week. I heard and saw was transformative and basically I witnessed a celebration of Lakhba Omer that would never return why because on October of 73 the big war happened Yom Kippur war after that Israel was a different country and that celebration was never what it used to be before how it was before it was wild It was unstructured in the sense that it came from the bottom up. People came to Meron, particularly the North African Jews, they came a week before. Actually, some of them even came on the last day of Passover. They spent almost a month in tents around the tomb side of the tzaddik because that's a good omen for you, for your lives. And believe me, people came there I don't know if I can say that to the microphone, to make children next to the tzaddik, uh, women who couldn't get premium, etc. So it was a lot of superstition, beliefs, all beliefs, there was a lot of card games, bars, alcohol. It was like a medieval festival. Then the night of Lakba Omer, all of the sudden, literally, thousands of Hasidim showed up. From different Hasidic dynasties. Mm -hmm. They uh, put all these bonfires all around the mountain in the middle of the night. And there was this amazing klezmer group that used to play a repertoire of klezmer music that is associated also only with that play. Eventually I learned that that was not exactly but at the time That's what it that became like. Nibunei Meron the songs of Meron mm-hmm. and so you have this klezmer you have this Arabic music all around the mountain you know there were musicians that eventually I realized some of them were very famous in their countries like and, well one of them which I remember very well meeting there was Sheikh Muizo his name was Moshe Attar one of the greatest Moroccan singers of style uh, Uh, Called Malhun, which is uh, light and delusion style. He was always performing there with his group. And um, I think Joe Amar was there too, and and you name it. Uh, And they played in these cafes, these tents turned into big uh, oriental cafes, so to speak, Uh, all sitting on the floor, on rugs. Some, it was wild. (laughs) It was wild. شالت عدبت
2: وقاشيت شالت عدبت وقاشيت ولا طبي بدوا يلقيت
1: no separation between men and women. Mm, that's really
0: interesting. Okay,
1: that's very interesting. The circulation. I mean, there was certain areas, but a year after, there were barriers between men and women. I mean, the Ministry of Religious Affairs took over. Ah. By the way, there was shkhita all around, open. You know, people used to just make uh, whoever the shorhead was in the middle of the tents and these huge barbecues going on. So it was the smell (gasps) of blood, alcohol, with this deep folk religiosity Mm -hmm. and the sounds. Yeah, a very visceral experience. Endless music, endless songs celebrating the tzaddik and all the tzaddikim of the Galilee and etc. and the Hasidim, the nigunim, the Klesmer. I came back home I was a different person. I said what do I have to say to the world about Beethoven or at the time I wrote a very long paper about Stravinsky's turn to serial music in the 1950s. I said you know, this is meaningless this is the music that I need to dedicate my time. Oh, From there, I went to the army. I went to the army after I graduated. I was an old soldier, so to speak. I was 21. And when I came back, I came straight to field work, to work with the music that at the time we discovered. It was the most beautiful and marvelous Andalusian Moroccan music. And I wrote my thesis on that. That's how I became an ethnomusicologist. So I was a musician. For reasons that we won't go into that, I ended up at the Department of Musicology as a musicologist. I work a lot with Professor Donna Aran of Memory. I copy from him all the madrigals of the 16th century, too, hmm. as a research assistant, and then the ethnomusicological parts. And this is why I keep quite an open vision of what my profession is. Yeah. From there, I uh, decided to go out and I applied for the University of California.
2: Okay.
0: So let me ask you now, moving on with the story of how your interest in the study of Jewish music was shaped by your experiences in graduate school at UCLA. And likewise, jumping forward in time, what kinds of advice would you offer to prospective students or new scholars who are thinking about entering this field (laughs) of study?
1: That's a big responsibility, But, uh, well, one of the first uh, issues I would recommend, that's what I uh, sort of hinted before, hinted before, uh, there is only one musicology. Mm -hmm. No matter what is your method, what is the source of your materials, whether oral traditions, uh, written scores, etc., there is, I believe, one way of thinking about music.
0: And what is that way?
1: Well, that way is to look for lines of transmission. So even when the music is written, there are lines of transmission. There is agency. I believe individual agency and networks of agents creating, reproducing, changing. You might add all the other Activities that you can enjoy, commercializing, recording, distributing, performing, etc. So all these activities add up to paths of transmission, paths of remembering, and paths of forgetting. And the most important thing, and that's my final point, is that you are part of that chain of transmission. You are not outside, you are an insider. You have your own worldview as researchers. I don't think we have to be over-reflexive, but always be aware that no matter what, the questions you're asking, the methods you choose, is always part of your own formation, of your own capabilities and gifts and strengths and weaknesses. So try always to pay attention to where are you and what you're doing. That's well,
0: great advice. I yeah. think we've really seen that on the podcast through the first season and now into the second season, that all of the ways that these scholars are coming to the fields that they study are informed by their own backgrounds, their perspectives, the moments in time that have had a really transformative impact.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think we get richer the more we are aware of that path. Certainly, uh, it was logical that I will dedicate some time to the Judeo-Spanish song, simply because Spanish is my mother tongue. Of course. But it fascinated me to hear the transformation of my mother language into some sort of Jewish dialects. that fascinated me because of their richness, their survival. I romanticized that a little bit when I was young, and then I grew a little bit more cautious of what I say about that. But eventually I realized that the way I thought about the Junior Spanish song was, in a way, not different from what many other agents in the field were promoting or duplicating, you know. So that was the field that brought me the more insights in the sense of why I am there and what I'm doing the moment I saw that what I write is quoted by other people without mentioning my name but it (laughs) appears in CD liner notes in concert programs etc that what I say is part of the field that I research. I am always happy for people to take, even if they don't vote by your name. Well, hopefully they do. Yeah, but, <laughs> but, but uh, it, it didn't bother me, but it, it opened my eyes that I have a responsibility.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: To get that, it right? Well, yeah, because you get, you know, it's an issue also of power relations. Mm-hmm. You get through the system of higher education, you get a certain credibility, right. so mm-hmm. that's a responsibility. And then, Because you have the power, what you say becomes powerful and you better are aware of your responsibility.
2: Right.
0: Well, looking back, who would you say have been some of your biggest mentors throughout your career? People who have advocated for you or gone to bat for you or have served as a type of role model
1: uh, along your journey? Yeah, yeah. I was so fortunate to have so many My teachers in Jerusalem, I mentioned Professor Adler. By the way, I never took a class with him.
0: Mm. You just worked alongside him. Yeah,
1: we worked together, but uh, when he started to teach, I was already in California. He didn't teach at the beginning. I know, bless memory, Israel, you know, (laughs) he was a horrible teacher. So I was glad that all what I learned from him was just by working yeah. you know, with him. Maybe it's him. better that you didn't take his class. Yeah, but I gained from him this professional care for archives, which mm-hmm. I now can even enjoy at this stage of my career. From what I learned from him then, the person I consider my only teacher in Jewish music, whatever that is, mm-hmm. is Professor Hanoha Menarit. Professor Avenari taught the class in Jewish music at the Hebrew University when I was an undergraduate. Mm -hmm. He was, of course, a German Jew, very German, (laughs) who came to Israel uh, during the Nazi period and the late 30s, uh, one of those who saved himself. He came as a musicologist, like other musicologists from Germany, came to Israel, like Lachman and then... They did girls on Kiwi, they all had degrees in classical music, music from the Renaissance, etc. They became like me, you know, Jewish ethnomusicologists, because they were displaced. Right. And Hanoch of Blessed Memory, uh he went to study, I think, engineering, and he was an engineer in the Israeli Air Force. Huh. And only after he retired from the army, he came back to the university and he got a position as professor at Tel Aviv University. Mm. His career started when he was 60 years old, I think. While he was in the very last years of his uh, army service, he already went back and he wrote an important article on Jewish music. Mm. And this is an important uh, issue that I addressed only lately. He wrote an article called Jüdische Musik at the uh, MGG, the main encyclopedia of music in German, Musik in Geschichte und Gegenwart, music in history and in the present. And he wrote the article in 55, 56.
0: That's right when the field is starting to become formed. Exactly. Even the field of musicology. So. Even
1: the field of music. And Who was the editor of MGG at the time? Frederick Blume, uh-huh. an open Nazi. Wow! So we have post war, post Holocaust, these two Germans, a Nazi in Germany <laughs> and a Jew in Palestine, they turned Israel, yeah, cooperating. Wow. Blume invites Avenari to write an article on Jewish music.
2: Fascinating,
0: that's a
1: fascinating.
0: Why do you think he did that?
1: Well. First of all, I would assume that it was part of the reparations. Okay,
2: interesting. Yeah.
1: Uh, Part of the, I don't know, the details of uh, probably in some archive, there may be correspondence between them. I never asked Hanoch about uh, why he did that. Actually, we even weren't much aware. I mean, I remember the encyclopedia sitting on the library, in the (laughs) National Library, but uh, our, even though we studied German, by the way, it was German was mandatory right. in musicology yes. in at the Hebrew University. Uh, we didn't read that much the okay. German literature, and eventually Hanoch wrote in seventy one the main article on Jewish music in the Encyclopedia Judaica. Okay, in the big Judaica, and that's, in my opinion, to this day one of the foundational texts in Jewish music. Mm-hmm. So the moment this article was published, that's when I just started. That was our textbook. Okay. That was our textbook. It's a very long article. (laughs) So Avinari taught this course at the Hebrew University on Thursdays at 2 p.m. in a classroom that we had adjacent to the synagogue in the Givat Ram campus in the Hebrew University with these big windows and it was in the spring and and early summer was so hot, two in the afternoon Thursday and he spoke with this heavy German accent, (laughs) every word and he used to sit and read from these yellow papers we all fell asleep however he lived in Tel Aviv so he used to come in the morning to Tel Aviv. And I used to meet him in a special room that we had where the Jewish Music Library collection was, the Jacob Michael collection. That if you remember, I spoke about that collection. Mm -hmm. So we used to sit there and we used to talk. And that's how I learned from him so much. Eventually, uh, one of my big books is an o- homage to him. It's about something that he started collecting uh, mentions of Judeo-Spanish songs in Hebrew poem collection, Bill collection. And uh, he gave me as a present when he was already very old and I went to visit him uh, to his daughter's home. She, he was already living with the daughter in a kibbutz in the frontier with Egypt. Mm-hmm. He gave me this little box with his 8 by 11 cards. Okay. And every card has the title of a Spanish song. Wow. In Rashi characters in Hebrew,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, with the source where it appears. Wow. And I still have that mm-hmm. in my office. So physically, he handled me, and that became a book called The Judeo-Spanish Song in Hebrew Sources. Yeah. So he was a very important influence, his way of thinking about history, about Jewish music history. I had many other teachers, but one of them was actually one of Israel's greatest composers, Professor Andrei Haidu of Bless Memory. Andre, I studied composition with him. I continued to try to be a composer when I was in my early 20s, but he was an amazing student of Kodai and Bartok. And so I got this school of uh of the greats <laughs> yeah amazing <laughs> yeah. uh so you see some it was my luck to be yeah. in this place where all these people were together in one spot mm-hmm. all these displaced people and from hungary and people from germany from france adler basically came from france yeah okay so And with all these different types of methodologies, of approaches, of understanding what is Jewish, what is not Jewish. It was an amazing period. And that's a period when the archive was constituted. Yeah. And believe me, you know, when Purim came, 12 different teams went to 12 synagogues in Jerusalem just to record the reading of the Megillah. With Mm -hmm. no research agenda, no goals, no nothing. Just to record the sound that will be forever why he who ahashverosh ha'molech mehud ve'atkus sheva ve'20 u'100 medina ve'yamim ma'em kishat ha'melech ahashverosh al kisei malchuto asher beshushana bira we recorded passover seders that we staged with different families from different traditions believe me today those recordings are pure gold
0: i'm sure it sounds like throughout your career you've vacillated between working with the archives and being very devoted to archival history and thinking a lot about methodology and ethnomusicological practices like field work and going out and sound recording and maybe oral history. I'd love to hear you just talk a bit about the methodological models that have come to mean so much to you and how you developed appreciations for each of them.
1: Yeah. Well, in terms of uh, models, of course, I took courses in anthropology because I felt that I needed more discipline in terms of how to think about humans, what we call culture, whatever Mm -hmm. that is. So (laughs) I think that one of the issues that mythologically was very important for me was the fact of how sound can be captured as an object since sound disappeared in the air. So that led me to think that uh, sound recording and a score are not as different as we think they are.
0: Because mm-hmm. they're both attempts to capture sound in some way.
1: Exactly. They both freeze the sound. There are at least two parameters that the recording has that the notation doesn't have. The most important is timbre. And the other is all the fluctuations of human physical capabilities of rep. Of doing music. So, while in notation we have every beat is the same, when you hear the recording, you see that they are not the same. So, you have these plus and cons. On the other hand, there are two types of scores. So, when the score is prescriptive, that is to say, written by a composer, you have there all the intentions that the creator of the music wanted you to pay attention to. Mm -hmm when the score is descriptive of an oral tradition, and then you have the issue of interpretation and even of your own musical limitations. Today, of course, we have machines that do the transcriptions, but even when you have the machine, you have to make some decisions as to what you do with that data. Yes. So it's not much different than doing good old transcriptions, which, of course had a very good exercise in musicianship Mm -hmm. too. And all of the old people like me in musicology remembers the classes in transcriptions that (laughs) as far as I understand, nobody does that today. And also the exercises, Mm -hmm. transcribing music. So that methodological issue of how to freeze the object of our inquiry was always central to my Mm -hmm. preoccupations, always worried about that. And one of the main events that dictated my way of thinking about that—that's what I think I mentioned to you—my my dissertation, where I had these manuscripts that I found at the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati of Turkish Jewish music, uh, written by a Hungarian cantor, and saying, "What can I do with that? What what that object that those papers tell me about the living musical tradition?" Oh, <tries> le So, what they did in that case methodologically was to decode the notations and uh, go into the field and do a replay, if Mm -hmm. you want, of the notations into my voice, Mm. which I use my timbre. So, I was inventing timbre. (laughs) So, the issue was whether pitch and duration are enough parameters for a person to recognize a piece as belonging to the piece. What do I mean by this? And here, another great musicologist had a great influence on me, and that's Professor Simcha Arum, another Israeli who is French for all practical purposes today, but another German kid, German Jew, a friend of Adler, very close friend, that's how I met Simcha, who is still around and working at the age of 90 something amazing, he's amazing, amazing <laughs> guy. And Simha taught us that every utterance of a piece in oral tradition belongs to what he called a class of equivalence. That is to say, how do you know that this piece is a performance of the imagined traditional piece, and when it, it stops being because the elements are not already arranged according to what the culture, so to speak, defines as belonging to the peace. So that very theoretical way of thinking led me to the fact that if I decode these transcriptions from the 19th century to Turkish cantors today, and they can say, as many of them say, you know, well, that sounds very weird, but yeah, it belongs to this pewter, to this prayer. So you could Claim historical continuity of oral tradition. Mm. That was something new in musicology, that like music has no history. And I tried to say no, music has history. Mm-hmm. And basically, what we are listening to is to the archive, right, in the memory of the people. Mm-hmm. So they are reproducing all the time instances of the piece. Each one is a little bit different, right, and. Every generation erodes something or transforms something or changes something, but it still belongs to what is called the theoretical piece that exists somewhere in the imagination of the researcher. So all these procedures of memory, performance, freezing sound, that were the methodological issues that preoccupied me until this uh, very day. Wonderful.
0: Wonderful. Well, of the many projects that you've worked on, is there one project that has really stood out to you as perhaps defining your career in a sense? And if so, and particularly pertaining to Jewish music, um, and if so, why did you choose it and what has excited you most about working on it?
1: Well, that's the toughest question you ask me because you reach a certain stage where all, all your projects are your, like your babies. And yeah, of course. And you you know, have many children. <laughs> yeah, which choose, one
2: your favorite. You prefer. Yeah, choose your favorite <laughs> child.
1: And every every child has its uh, pros and cons, I mm-hmm. can tell you that from experience <laughs> too. Listen, it's uh, really hard because even when I had a project that I dedicated a lot, I keep coming back.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's a return only time to the project. Yeah. So the Judeo-Spanish book that was published now in English uh, relatively recently last year is the... Accumulation of so much thinking about the ways this repertoire came into being. Again, going back from the medieval period to our very days, and really brought me into this deep way of thinking about about culture in general. Well, you know, what is human culture, how people interact, and some, as I mentioned before, how many of what we think are the pillars of a certain culture are the results of casual encounters. Yes, You know, that A meets B and they create C and nobody thought before that. And then at a certain point, looking back, you know, into into that pillar that you thought it was there forever and then you realize that it was make up or invented at a certain point. Mm -hmm. And that's a way, and I trace that through this methodology of looking at one song. And here you sing back Simharam. I took the song, as I put it, as a site of ruins, you know, that you visit and revisit like a tourist. And then you keep hearing more recordings, more interpretations, Mm -hmm. more texts about this song, and you go back and forth, and you see how every performance, every CD, every concert emerge as
0: like a palimpsest. Yes, yes,
2: exactly.
1: So the book, in a way, consolidates so many older articles. I think my first uh, paper on a major conference at the World Congress of Jewish Studies, I was still an MA student, I think. It was a tango song in nice. the Moroccan Jewish repertoire. What song? Well, it's a nice song. It's a tango about the death of a horse. The death uh, of a horse. Yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> it's <laughs> That uh, the singer or the poet is uh, sadly remembering his horse, or you know, that died.
2: Mi caballo
0: murió, mi alegría Pues con él perdió, mi más
2: fiel. Mi murió.
1: Y mi se fue. So, by contrafactum, the Moroccans turned this into a man who lost his wife. Oh. <laughs> I think to a muslin. So she went away. So, instead of singing my horse, left me or went away, who died, he said, mi alegría, my joy, <laughs> which is also a name in Judeo-Spanish, she left. Mi caballo murió, alegría se fue. Se la llevó el Maseb, que vino de Teruel. Que le venga un taó, al Sajemeleó. Yo a la fuente nueva iba, a adrear con alegría. Quiz por la mal lograda era como un diamante, la negra toda decía. So that's the contra fact. It's uh, you know it's it's hilarious and it's uh, it's a commentary on Jewish-Muslim relations, but it's also a commentary on the spread of tango as a global. Genre, which mm-hmm. is i teach my big seminar on tango but i never wrote anything about uh, this beyond this this article yeah but tango is my passion because that's a music i grew with too you see you mm-hmm. i didn't mention this no you didn't but that's the popular music of uh, uruguay and we are deeply into that you know you have in uruguay and in argentina of course uh 24-7 radio stations uh, with tango. So I teach uh, a graduate seminar on tango, which I deeply enjoy. But this article was the very, very beginning of paying attention to globalization mm-hmm. without even knowing the world at the time. Right. Okay. We're talking about late 80s or something like that, about the fact that geographies are misleading mm-hmm. and all the idea of East and West is spurious and there was never such a thing. There were areas of contact uh, between the Ottoman Empire and Europe, between Europe and North Africa, between North Africa and America, through the Atlantic. There was a Black Atlantic and there was a Jewish Atlantic. Right. Okay, so the whole issue of music, Jewish musicians moving from Europe, Eastern Europe, to the Americans and readapting or relearning the autochthonous languages of music, whether it's jazz in America or tango in South America because a musician has to make a living right. and you cannot make a living playing the same music you played in the old world you learn the new world and mm-hmm. then you twist the new world music with some Jewish inflections you know, that are even in tango and of course in American music, so from the very beginning to the very end, uh, this topic was like a thread going to my work
0: well you've talked a little bit about this or at least hinted towards it but from what i know many of the scholars who are here with us this year at the cat center are mentees former students of yours and i think that that's particularly special to be a scholar in residence here this year with many of your former students And so I wanted to ask you, recognizing that many scholars celebrate the opportunity to teach others as an extension of their research pursuits, if you might tell me a little bit about your recent lecturing or teaching experiences, and how working with your students this year and in the past has contributed to your research agenda.
1: Thank you for the question, because my students are my passion. And not only I'm proud of them, but I'm proud of the fact that most of them are much better thinkers than I am. And they go into frontiers that I never thought of or approach. And I see that as my most important prize, I want to tell you this. And I'm not telling you this for to sound nice. I really (laughs) believe in that. So yeah, that's an amazing opportunity to be with some of them. Others are scattered all around. I am glad that most of them did find a place to pursue their careers uh, within musicology. Each one, of course, is a different story, a different individual, different topics, Mm -hmm. very different uh, ones. So, you know, your privilege of talking with these brilliant young people, whether this is Italian liturgical music in the late 19th century, or whether this is the beginnings of uh, Jewish musicology in Germany in the late 19th century, or the history of the Yiddish uh, folk song, uh, now one who didn't finish yet. I gave him a private archive of a great Ottoman Jewish musician that I got from the family, and I knew that I would never have the time to deal with that. I yeah. just gave him all, and he's writing a dissertation on that. So. I think that diversification of of issues and topics is what our main goal in life is as scholars.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Beautifully put. Well, we've come to the final couple of questions for today's discussion. And so I'm going to just pose them to you and we'll see what you make of them. Yeah. And those are, how do you, after decades of a career in this strange and mysterious field of Jewish music, understand the field of Jewish yeah. music. What issues or challenges with this field of study do you think scholars today really need to remain attentive to?
1: Yeah. Well, thank you. You don't expect me to answer those questions into detail because we won't have the time to do that. So very succinctly, poetically, I wrote the article on Jewish music, which I always promised myself that I will never write. <laughs> but I did it for the MGG. This is going back to my teacher. Veneri, who wrote the first Jewish music article. So in the new online version of MGG, published two years ago, I think, you know, The same name, Yudisha Music. The article is not dedicated to define Jewish music at all, but to trace the borderlines of the field of interest of different people who thought of themselves like dealing with Jewish music. And that's what Jewish music is for me. Mm -hmm. A space of narratives, of texts that are produced and reproduced. And for me, texts can be an academic article, but can be a song, can be a performance, Mm -hmm. can be anything. Is a text. So my text is a meta text on a reflection on that. And part of it deals with encyclopedia articles called Jewish music. So, I go through the groves. I even go into my own entry on the New Grove as assessing myself critically. I'm not ashamed of having written parts of that article because that article on the New Grove was written under very strange circumstances that we won't go into that now. <laughs> so we didn't have the time to think about enough. Yeah. But the MGG, I had time to think, and I wrote that for the German public. Mm. Who has a very special way of conceiving of Jewish culture, and I believe that musicology is, after all, a German invention, a German profession. So I accepted the invitation, and uh, the article. I hope I will some time have the time to publish the English uh, version. Of it. I wrote it in English, but since then it went through many transformations. But Jewish music is a discursive field. It's a field that includes anything that people think falls under this label, Mm -hmm. simply put. Yeah. That's the way I I think about it. So I myself have contributed a lot to this uh, discourse and hope to contribute a little bit more. But the second part of your question, I think, is the most important one. And you heard that from me more than once that the issue with Jewish music is to know how much we don't know. Yes. And how much we don't know uh, means that the future has to expand its vistas mm-hmm. in terms of the uh, types of material that we deal with uh, under the label of Jewish music, archives, sounds. There is an entire world out there that is still terra incognita. So I would suggest that uh, the future generations and my students are doing that. We move on from the mainstream fields of inquiry that we have in mind into new areas, uh, both geographically, historically. We keep discovering new names, new places, new sounds. Is endless, and any addition to this discursive field makes it richer. Yes. And more textured.
0: Beautifully put. Well, last but not least, do you believe that there is such a thing as Jewish music or an identifiable Jewish sound? Why or why not? If so, how would you characterize it? And if this question is too essentializing, what questions about the music and sound of Jewish experience would you ask instead?
1: If there is anything called Jewish music, it's not one. So there are many types and and genres and sounds that are characterized by several agents as as being Jewish. And you cannot deny that. Whether that's correct or incorrect doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. So you have external visions of what the Jewish voice sounds like. This exists throughout the world and throughout history. So there is this uh, sonic gaze, if you want. Oh, I like that term. Yeah, sonic gaze. Let me just give you tangible examples. Sure, great. You know, there's nothing better than example. One of my heroes in research is a great Ottoman Jewish cantor, Turkish Jewish cantor, Itzhak Al-Ghazi, who was active in the first half of the 20th century. Al-Ghazi was so famous as a Turkish singer that after the fall of the Ottoman Empire and the establishment of the Turkish Republic, the founder of the Turkish Republic, the President Atatürk, uh, had a very interesting uh, approach to music. Music was important for him in the constitution of the new secular Turkish Republic. <clears throat> build upon, um, on the one hand, uh, simply Western models Mm -hmm. of nationhood. So one of the steps that he took was in a way to try to create a new musical space in Turkey that will erase those sounds, Mm -hmm. the old imperial uh, music. But deep in his heart, he loved the old Ottoman music, so he used to invite singers to sing for him in the palace the, you know at night, and this is very interesting because when the president invited you, you don't say no, you come to right the palace so what I learned, and this some can teach you also about methodology in the sense that when I wrote about that. I knew about these encounters and I also knew from the Al-Ghazi family that Ataturk, after uh, such a performance by Yitzhak, gave him a Quran with a signature, Mm -hmm. surprise. That's the first chapter of the history. However, many years after, a very distinguished scholar of Turkish music, friend of mine, John O'Connell. Wrote an, an article about the same encounter, oh. the Turk, with Al Ghazi. And these are things that I didn't know because I didn't read the memoir of another musician who was invited, <laughs> who was a Muslim musician. And uh, these memoirs tell about this encounter with Al Ghazi, Ataturk, and himself. So what he writes there is very fascinating because it speaks about how Algazi sounded. Mm. Even though he was uh, really considered one of the main representatives of the old style of Ottoman singing, he still had Jewish inflections. Mm. Now, when I, when I listened to all the recordings by Ghazi, I could never
2: Pick hear that. those sounds. Yeah.
1: Never. Huh. And he heard that. And the other thing is that he said that Atatur gave him the Quran with a dedication, was said. Um, real hint that he better convert to islam wow and this is why al ghazi left one of the reasons apparently that he left turkey and he ended up in montevideo uruguay being the cantor of the community of my grandfather wow and that's how i inherited his materials
2: that's
0: incredible
1: So there was something Jewish in this Turkish, quintessential Turkish sound. And there is apparently the same you can apply to other situations where you have maybe an inflection or, as we already heard in several of our seminars, some certain way of singing, that sometimes you're even not aware as a researcher that there is such a thing. And of course, there are all around but you will call semantic ruins of Jewishness in music, you know, augmented seconds, etc. No matter how much you say that the music of so many other peoples are full of augmented seconds, when it comes to stereotypes in movies or TV series, etc. And Jews are there, or some Jewish topic, they use these uh, sonic markers or stereotypes uh, of, of sound to end up with another of my obsessions in research that's uh, the national anthem of Israel today the tikva mm-hmm. how that became also a marker of jewishness in so many instances and the only thing that it sometimes is used as a marker is the first two bars you don't need the whole song to have a signification of jewishness <laughs> So, so this is why I call these uh, sonic uh, fragments, and you know that that are in there. But that has to do with modernity already, where we live on a network of symbols yeah. that we connect with uh, certain ideas. I don't know how in the medieval period uh, Jews really sounded like and were heard by, but I certainly know from a historical studies that there was always both a fascination and a rejection of Jewish sounds. In Muslim spaces, in Christian spaces, as we heard in our seminar today, whether these are Catholic spaces or Protestant spaces, the Jew is always heard, no matter what. That may be the main rationale to be a researcher of Jewish music, I guess.
0: Yeah. Well, what a fantastic place to leave things. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. For speaking
1: my with pleasure. me. And I'm very happy to do this to you also for the sake of uh, I'll say, telling the story once again yeah. for the record. Well,
0: it was my honor. So thank you. Thank
1: you. Thank you.
0: And now, a brief note from our sponsors. The Sounding Jewish podcast is grateful to be sponsored by the Herbert D. Katz Center for Advanced Judaic Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. This year, in honor of its fellowship theme, The Sound and Music of Jewish Life, many of the Katz Center's public programs, both online and in person, feature scholarship devoted to Jewish music and sound. On Thursday, January 11th, 18th, and 25th, at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Zoom, Dr. Galit Dardashti will offer a mini-course called Israeli Music Goes Mizrahi. On Sunday, January 21st, at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, in person at the Weitzman National Museum of American Jewish History, Dr. Hadar feldman Summit, as well as several of her instrumental collaborators, will present Sacred Soundscapes, Musical Traditions from the Ottoman Empire. On Tuesday, January 23rd, at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Zoom, Dr. Naomi Konzentner zentner will present the third and final part of the series on nigunim. Her talk will be titled The Hasidic Nigun at the Sabbath Table. Additionally, our other sponsor, the Jewish Music Forum, a project of the American Society for Jewish Music, will be continuing its regularly scheduled season of public programs at New York Center for Jewish History. On Thursday, January 4th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the very talented Isabel Frey and Benji Fox Rosen will present Challenging the Theater of Memory, Yiddish song beyond kitsch and stereotype. On Thursday, January 18th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Dr. Barry Gellis and an incredible cast of performers will present thousands of stories to tell, Broadway musicals, New York City, and the making of Jewish Americans. And finally, on Monday, January 29th, Artistic Director Thomas Schüttelhelm and the Network for New Music will perform a concert of new works. Please register online using the links in the show notes. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the Sounding Jewish Podcast. I would like to take this opportunity to thank our sponsors, the American Society for Jewish Music, the Milken Center for Music of American Jewish Experience at UCLA, and the University of Pennsylvania's Herbert D. Katz Center for Advanced Judaic Studies. Tune in next month when I will be joined by Dr. Uri Ehrman to discuss his ongoing work on 18th century British Jewish opera singers.
2: Bye for now.